0: This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9.
1: This is the Informer Daily for Wednesday, the 1st of April 2020. I'm your host, Arianne Potts. Today, the sad story of the choir practice that left 45 people ill with COVID-19. How can you keep your children busy when they're learning at home we talked to an education consultant for some answers
2: i think that if parents are able to give up time and sit with their children while they're actually engaging with online tasks then I think that can become, the the parent can be the conduit, if you like, between the teacher and the child. And it can be much more engaging because this, the child realises that the parent is seeing this as an important thing.
1: And how can geospatial technology help track the COVID-19 outbreak? And a little bit more. But first, this update.
3: This is Dee Mason with your join 94.9 COVID-19 news update. Foreign Minister Maurice Payne says the federal government can't guarantee passage home for every Australian stuck overseas during the COVID-19 pandemic. The government will soon be announcing further rescue flights for Australians left stranded in countries with closed borders, but it's not possible to get everyone home. Australia's foreign diplomats are reportedly doing all they can to ensure all Australians trapped overseas are safe. The federal government is committing to their planned tax cuts despite concerns they will add to years of further deficit. Trade Minister Simon Birmingham told the ABC the tax cuts will help with economic recovery post-pandemic. The next phase of tax cuts, which were legislated before the COVID-19 outbreak, come into effect in the next financial year. News Corp is suspending the printing of 60 community papers from April 9 as COVID-19 has caused a drop in advertising revenue. The closure of dine-in restaurants, event cancellations and restrictions on real estate auctions are the main cause of the decline in advertising. This follows the closure of Victorian independent newspapers earlier last month. A viral message claiming COVID-19 deaths have been linked to ibuprofen has been debunked. The Medical University of Vienna, which is cited in the text spreading the rumour, has called it fake news. People are encouraged not to believe any information about COVID-19 unless it comes from an official source. Every health district in New South Wales now has at least one case of COVID-19 after a resident of Broken Hill tested positive. The Far West Health District, which confirmed the case, says the resident is now self-isolating at home. Victorian children living in state care have been temporarily banned from visiting their families during the pandemic. This has been done to protect children, parents and carers in accordance with advice from the Department of Health and Human Services. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has announced a further $1.3 billion investment into the state's health system. Health Minister Jenny McCarcos says the money will go towards intensive care beds and personal protective equipment for hospital staff. Travellers through Adelaide Airport are being told to wipe down their luggage, especially handles, after baggage handlers tested positive for COVID-19. Anyone who has been to the airport recently and has developed symptoms should get tested for the virus and self-isolate. Western Australia is potentially succeeding in flattening the curve, with new case numbers reported yesterday in the single digits. State Health Minister Roger Cook says Western Australia will not be easing up on their restrictions yet. And the state is committed to enforcing social distancing until the pandemic has receded nationally. And to the United States now, where it's reported that people are panic buying baby chickens ahead of further restrictions, with many aiming to create their own backyard flock. Tom Watkins, the vice president of Murray McMurray Hatchery, told the New York Times, people are panic buying chickens like they did toilet paper.
1: This is the Informer Daily on JOY 94.9, and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I don't know about you, but I've had some moments of frustration lately where I think, is this all worth it? I wish I could just go about my normal life at times. But there's a very good example of why, even if we don't feel sick, social and physical distancing is important. On the 10th of March, in a valley a little ways north of Seattle, the Skagit Valley Chorale held their usual practice. Following the guidelines in place at the time, they practiced physical and social distancing. But after their rehearsal, 45 of the 60 attendees tested positive for COVID-19, and two have died. I spoke with Rich Reed, Seattle Bureau Chief of the Los Angeles Times, to find out more. Uh, What can you tell me about what's happened to the Skagit Valley Chorale?
4: Well... It's a very unfortunate situation. So on March ten, uh, they gathered uh, for their weekly rehearsal. Um, there are about one hundred and twenty members of this choir. It's it's just an amateur choir in Northwest Washington State, and, and uh, so but they were concerned about the situation with coronavirus, and so they told their members you know to be cautious, and if any anybody had symptoms. Uh, to stay away or if they were concerned about their health to stay away. Um, but about half the usual crowd showed up 60 people, uh, in a church hall that, that they rented for this every week. Uh, and the conductor and the pianist were there and they, uh, had set up rows of chairs, uh, and they spent the usual two and a half hours, uh, rehearsing. And, uh, unfortunately the, uh, Effect of that is that uh, forty-five of the sixty ended up uh, getting COVID nineteen, and uh, two of those have died.
1: Uh, so two of the forty-five.
4: Yeah, right. Two of the forty-five who got sick.
1: And have they f- have they tracked like which person it was or anything?
4: They really don't have any idea. Um, and the uh, really disturbing part of this is that you know nobody there exhibited symptoms. You know, we're in this sort of a climate here at the moment. I don't know how it is in Australia, but, uh, you know, if somebody sneezes or coughs, everybody dives for cover. And uh, nobody heard or saw anything like that, and people were being conscientious. They even had um, a big jug of hand sanitizer at the door when they came in. Uh, they were not sharing any food. There was a small pile of uh, mandarins, of oranges in the back at a table that a few people snacked on. Um, and they set out the chairs with a little more distance than usual, uh, and so when I've uh, interviewed experts in infectious disease spread, uh, the disconcerting thing is that people are wondering whether perhaps this spread in the air, um, instead of you know droplets falling uh, from somebody's lungs that perhaps and you know then touching something, that in fact these they call them aerosols, tiny particles that you admit, um, when you're speaking or especially deep, uh, breathing very deeply to sing, uh, might've just been floating in the air. And that was the method of contagion.
1: And what were the restrictions that were, or what was the, the practice for that day? Um, you know, what advice was the government or health officials giving people back then?
4: It was right before, I mean, so, uh, Washington was really the first state, uh, you know, in the upper uh, west corner of the United States that was hit by coronavirus. Uh, we had the first case in uh, January of a guy who um, came back to the Seattle area after traveling in Wuhan. Um, and, uh, and then we had this terrible outbreak in a nursing home uh, that claimed several lives. But, um, and that was happening. Uh, but this county is a little more rural, and they had not had a case at that time. Actually, their first case was that very day, March 10, uh, but it didn't occur early enough for the uh, choir members to even know about it. So, I mean, there was none of this social distancing. Um, I think it was actually the next day when the first prohibitions went in in terms of uh, not being able to gather in large groups.
1: So they were going by sort of common sense guidelines in absence of further restrictions from the government, I guess you could say.
4: Right. I mean, they were trying to be cautious and nobody realized uh, at that stage, it's amazing how fast all this has developed, but at that stage, really, um, you know, how serious this was.
1: And you've interviewed some of the people from the, the Skagit Valley Corral. is that correct?
4: That's right. Uh, when I first heard about this, uh, I started uh, calling some of the members, got their names off of the website, um, and uh, talking to them. And... I knew that the further I worked my way up in the chain, uh, once I got to one of their board members, I was immediately referred to the conductor who said, well, I'll send you a statement. But I really wanted to do a story about what had happened. I I did not want to do a story that blamed anybody. I I thought this could be a warning to people of how contagious it is. And once the conductor, the director realized what I was trying to do, they were very collaborative because they've suffered a great deal and they thought, you know, it would be a good idea to warn people.
1: You spoke with some people that, well, 75% roughly of the people that attended came down with uh, or were infected with COVID-19. Did you speak with some of the people that were infected?
4: I did. Um, so the, uh, the director or conductor himself and his wife were both infected. Um, and then uh, I talked to... Uh, three other people by phone, and then I actually went to uh, this little town of Mount Vernon and uh, talked to two of the couples who are still recovering. Uh, of course, I stood outside of their homes to interview them, um, and both of those couples really had a tough time and are now getting better, although the, the one couple, um, the photographer, my photographer, was so uh, taken by the fact that this couple... They were at home recovering and they were singing uh, choral numbers to each other with the piano. And she couldn't resist walking into their house to take pictures of that for the story. Of course, wearing a
1: mask. Oh, wow. Um, and how, how were they feeling? They
4: said that um, it's, it's horrible. I mean, they say it's like getting hit by a train. And they also said that, you know, you hear... Uh, of all these kind of typical symptoms the uh, the cough the shortness of breath the fever and they said it's not necessarily like that I mean there there may be those uh, symptoms there may also be a number of other symptoms just you know very achy feeling and um, so it's kind of hard to know when you are coming down with it and Uh, They say, the experts here say, maybe in the same where you are, that, you know, typically you can catch it and then walk around for four days without any symptoms before you realize that you're sick.
1: Well, we're pretty much um, at home these days in in Australia, and the government's really prohibited any movement except for essential things. And um, people are getting fines for not following, like up to $10,000. So it's being taken quite seriously. And um, in New South Wales, where Sydney is, half of their cases came off of a cruise ship.
4: Well, I think the uh, the cruise ship scenario is somewhat perhaps similar to this choir scenario in that you, you have to wonder if it travels through the air, possibly through ventilation, or um, at least you know in close quarters, as we all know. Um, just to put things in perspective, I was looking up your numbers. I think Australia has about a little over 4,000 positive, uh, COVID cases, right? Yeah. And so we have more than that just in our one state of Washington with a population of seven and a half million. We have, uh, as of, uh, yesterday it was about 4,900 cases. Um, Australia, I think, uh, Australia, 19 deaths just in Washington state, 195 deaths. So it's just, uh, you know, as I say, it hit here first, but of course, our numbers are nothing like what we're seeing in New York.
1: COVID-19 really changed how people work as a journalist. How has that impacted you as a news gatherer?
4: Well, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's a great question, because uh, I'm used to running out to interview sources in person. Um, and, uh, you know, politicians, of course, call a news conference at the drop of a hat. And, and I'm in downtown Seattle, I run over to City Hall, or I go to the governor's news conference, and or even the public health officials. And when all this began, that's how it was. We were all crammed into these little rooms with all the TV cameras, you know, squashed in, and and we're all asking questions. And boy, has that changed. And now all the briefings are over the phone. Um, When they do have something in person, they maintain, you know, about eight feet of distance uh, between the governor and the mayor and whoever might be doing the press conference so that's changed a lot
1: rich reed from the los angeles times speaking with me this morning this is the informer daily on joy 94.9 and across australia on the community radio network How do you keep your children occupied and learning effectively during this time? I spoke with education consultant Karen Green to find out more. We're in a situation where lots of children are learning from home and trying to do their, their lessons. How do you think that's working?
2: Well, I think there's some people that are doing it probably quite well. Uh, they might be already experienced teachers, but there's the majority of people are not trained as teachers so i think the main message really for these parents that are out there trying to run through distance education or home learning with their with their own children is to remember that they're not replacing school and that they're not their child's teacher they're their child's parent and that's quite a different relationship so they need to be flexible but firm and need to establish some rules and routines that that Kids start adapting to.
1: What sort of rules and routines have you found that are particularly helpful?
2: So I think the main thing is to create something that does resemble school a bit, which is you know a, a timetable that has got some structure to it, but not too structured, so that there is that sense of flexibility that that children can understand that this is what we're trying to get through today um, mm. but it doesn't matter if we don't get through it all and it's not you know that parents can go a bit slower than teachers because um, they haven't got a whole class and they can really read their own children and work out what they need to be doing with them mm. but I think I think there needs to be some sort of a trigger in, in the home environment. Um, I was reading before that that some parents are even getting their their children to get dressed in their school clothes which I love (laughs) it's like okay and maybe even pack a lunchbox so that would be that that would be really quite an appropriate way to get um, kids on board and understand that this is this is definitely a time for our brains to be switched on to learning Hmm. Um, you know and, and it's a special learning space that's created that where there are no interruptions, where there might be a desk set up and different, obviously, if you've got more than one child, that you actually set up different spaces for them around the house and they understand what they're being asked to do.
1: That, that seems like it, it would be challenging at first. Um, what advice do you give parents that are struggling right now to set up that routine?
2: So I think the first thing is to go easy on yourself as well and that you're not going, I've often explained this to teachers as well when I've had Perfectionistic teachers being really upset about not being able to teach everything that they think their children need their their students need to know. Um, parents are one place where students will learn, where children will learn, and they don't have to be responsible for everything. And pa- t- parents will be getting information from schools now that schools have actually closed around the country. The teachers are busy working on um, materials that they are sending home to parents in terms of um, you know their their literacy and their numeracy um, and I think that it's really important for people to to just take their their foot off the pedal a little bit and just take a big deep breath and realize that their children won't fall that far behind because they are going to be constantly learning whatever it is that they're doing, although I must say. That the television uh, constantly on is probably not a great idea.
1: Do you have any suggestions for making online learning as effective as person-to-person learning?
2: Look, I think that if parents are able to give up time and sit with their students, with their children, while they're actually engaging with online tasks, then I think that can become that the parent can be the conduit if you like between the teacher and the child and it can be much more engaging because the child realizes that the parent is seeing this as an important thing so it's not just we're not just throwing you in front of a computer or an ipad Mm. to, to keep you quiet in the corner we're actually a team here working together to build up your knowledge base and we can have a lot of fun doing it so there's a lot of offshoots that come if parents Um, have got some ideas about some basic teaching skills. One of them is is really critical, I think, that people can get a lot from, which is called wait time. So that when we're in a classroom, when teachers pose questions of students one of the great strategies is to actually explain to your students that you're going to give them eight to ten seconds to think about the question Mm -hmm. and that's when that we want the answer not we don't want the the blurted out first answer which is usually superficial thinking by by requesting wait time we actually get quite deep into a question and we give um uh, children an opportunity to really think about what the answer could be and i think if parents are working with their children with online materials that are being sent home from the school the parents can pause at any point and and probe some good deep questions to their children which might take them off on a slightly different tangent but that's perfectly okay because this is all learning mm. so i think that that way at time is really important um, and the other thing that's really important is to understand that children, to learn, in order to learn, need to scaffold learning. So we, we don't just jump into year 12 physics, for example, without having started our science journey, if you like, in, in the, the primary years in the in foundation level of being a five year old. So learning is scaffolded, and, and everybody picks up learning at different rates. Mm-hmm and and for different reasons. So so some children will have an absolute passion for, for drawing or painting and they will develop their skills um, far more rapidly than a child who doesn't have that passion but the child that doesn't have the passion can still be taught. So we all learn things at different rates and in different ways and this, in a way, I think this is a fabulous opportunity now, even though it's this is the silver lining that I can see, um, that it's a great opportunity to spend quality one-on-one time with children because teachers um, have up to 25 students at a time. Mm-hmm. And if you've got an opportunity just to work with your own child, you'll start seeing and hearing things that you probably didn't even realise that they knew or understood Um and, and one of the things that I've certainly found over my years of working in schools with, with different teachers and classes is that we've really a lot of the time we underestimate what children can do. Um, and you you often don't get back information because you're not asking for it. So there's a the great expression that you get back what you assess. Mm-hmm. So if you are not assessing a child for certain things, you might not even realise or know that they can do it. Mm. So it's, it's taking taking the time to slow down and probe and prod and pose questions, and giving children an opportunity to go off on their own uh, to find out about things that they're interested in.
1: Karen Green speaking with me earlier today. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. geospatial technology, where data are combined with location information, is proving to be a useful tool in tracking cases of COVID-19. I spoke with Professor Mark Daniel, who is a professor of epidemiology and a research lead at the University of Canberra, about the situation. Thanks for joining us today. What can you tell us about what uh, geospatial technology is?
5: It involves integrating uh bunch of advanced digital tools that support acquiring managing transforming analyzing and visually uh, visualizing spatially referenced data the the key thing is the visualizing spatially referenced data mm-hmm Now, um, this is made possible by tremendous advances in computing power and capacities to handle massive volumes of data that are involved in this kind of work Mm -hmm. Uh, to make a simple um, description. If you imagine uh, something like a layer cake and you put a pin down the middle of it, and that pin represents where you live, each of those layers can be seen as a different data set that describes something about where you live. So we can look at socio-demographic information. We can look at the uh, accessibility for your residents to different services that are essential for living. We can look at, say, the proximity of people around you, the density of dwelling, the numbers of people crammed into a square kilometer, say. We can look at all manner of things. Um, we talk about... Um, the social environment, the built environment, and the physical environment.
1: And what have you been finding?
5: In the work that we do, we've looked at a number of viruses as well as work on chronic disease. So we've done work with hepatitis C, HIV, AIDS, uh, common infections, including um, uh, pneumococcal disease, influenza, uh, gastrointestinal uh, diseases, and... What we see is that the rate of transmission is the key issue and what we're looking at around the world primarily involves counts of cases in different geographies initially those counts of cases of COVID-19 were reported at the country level now we're seeing a little more discrimination, they're reported for cities and that's important but even within cities what we'd like to get at is where the cases are physically located we need to know that in order to do predictive modelling to understand where it's going to move to so if if you think you have to take an epidemiological perspective which is to say you might have a high prevalence and you do in in china right now Mm. Uh, we do in certain areas around the world but the key issue is not the prevalence of it which is the proportion of people who have it it's the rate of development as that progresses and moves um, geographically. So that's the number of people who develop it per population Mm -hmm. um, at risk. And we need to understand that. And there's only a little bit of information touching on that right now. Um, Johns Hopkins is doing a fabulous job. Many of the key universities around the world are offering capacity to look at what's happening. But we're interested uh, also in the attack rate. And that's not the, the incidence rate. The attack rate is of the people. Um, who are exposed to a given case, how many of them actually develop it. Mm. That's different from the proportion of people at risk in a given area. It's the people who are specifically exposed because not everyone's going to develop it. So we under, we seek to understand how the, the factors to which people are exposed geographically and spatially influence that transmission rate Uh, ideally for people who are exposed and that's where the um, uh, case uh finding comes in as very important and where um, contact tracing is very important because those contacts are people who are exposed and they all move off to a different geographic area so then you have to track them and then you can understand who they've come into contact with and what kinds of spatial environmental factors are related to their developing the disease or not developing it.
1: that was professor mark daniel from the university of canberra speaking with me And finally today, keeping up with the news from Seattle, where it isn't quite the first of April, a man led police on a high-speed chase yesterday, traveling as fast as 160 kilometers an hour. When he was finally stopped with spike strips, police found the man in the passenger seat of the car and his pit bull in the driver's seat. The man who was arrested for DUI claimed he was teaching the dog how to drive and that he was steering for the dog. That's it for us today. Thanks to Nicholas Sandry, Emily Johnson, Dee Mason, and Judy Kelly. We'll be back tomorrow, perhaps from my veranda instead of my lounge room. Who knows? Until then, I'm Arian Potts saying mahalo.
0: Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au, and of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast, brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy.